Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's word, which we study this, this evening, is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So far the word of the Lord. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Is the earth at the center of the universe? Most of us learned when we were in grade school that for a large part of the history of the earth, man just assumed it was. After all, you look up and you see the sun and moon and it looks like they're moving around us. But then men like Galileo and those who followed him provided pretty convincing arguments that uh, the earth went around the sun, not the other way around. If you ask an astrophysicist these days, if the earth is at the center of the universe, he would probably tell you it's a moot point, that there is no objective reference point from which to say which is the one that is moving and which is the one that is still. But he would probably also add, even if it was just in his head, that considering the vastness of space, it's really kind of silly to think the earth is anything special or that man is anything special. Man is just a tiny, minute nothing in the vastness of space. God's word agrees that space, God's creation, is quite vast. But God also disagrees that man is nothing. God's word makes it quite clear that in that vastness of space, man is not lost to God, but is kept as the apple of his eye, and God watches over us every day of our lives. Man, the earth might not be the center of the universe, physically speaking, but man certainly is the center of God's heart and the center of God's creation, as we see in our verse today and some of the other verses we're going to look at today as well. There are two things about these uh, three verses, 6, 7, and 8 of Genesis 1, that sometimes can be a little confusing to people. One of them is this discussion about the waters above versus the waters below. What does that mean, uh, that God made waters above? What's he, he talking about there? And the second one is the word firmament, which is not in our text because we're using the ESV, but you probably are familiar with from the New King James and the Old King James. What does that word firmament mean? We're not going to go into all the arguments and technical detail about uh, those two things. We don't really have time to do that tonight, but if anyone's curious, we can always talk about it later. But just to summarize, I'll let you know that when you study these words in Scripture, it becomes pretty clear that what God is talking about, when he talks about the waters above and the waters below, that really all he's saying is that he created that which is above us and that which is below us. He created the earth that we walk on, although in day two there is no dry land yet. That comes in the next day, day three. And he created both the sky, the atmosphere above us, and all that which is beyond it, that vast outer space. Now what's interesting and really an important thing to pay attention to is that God makes the division between them to the two man, doesn't he? Man is the point of division. From an astrophysicist's point of view, this is very arbitrary, you might say. 
But this is how God describes his work of creation. He divided that which is above us from that which is below us. That doesn't mean that the earth revolves around the sun, or that the sun revolves around the earth. It doesn't mean that you have to take this passage to prove that the earth is at the center of the universe, but it does show us what God cares about. And what God cares about is man. With regard to that second question, uh, that word firmament, once again, it's quite clear from scripture that this word simply means that which is above. It refers to everything in the, in the sky and beyond uh, in what we usually refer to as outer space. The Old King James and the New King James, uh, they, have, they have their arguments or reasons for choosing that word permanent, but the word we see here in the ESV, expanse, which is the one used most by newer translations, is probably a much better translation. That which is rolled out, there's even a psalm that talks about God rolling out the sky and that which is above it, right? Uh, that which is expanded, is blown out, is spread out. That's what God's really talking about in this verse. And that expanse, just that word expanse, implies something quite large. And of course, that expanse is quite vast, quite large. It goes on into mind-boggling lengths that we can't even imagine. Some of you may have visited a planetarium, or maybe you saw a TV show on PBS or something like that, which attempts to give you some idea how vast the universe really is. And they often do that thing with the, with the, where there seem, it looks like there's a camera zooming out. Uh, obviously, they didn't have an actual camera that they sent out into space, and we wouldn't be able to do that, but <laughs> they kind of make it look like you're zooming out away from the Earth. And it doesn't take very long for the Earth to recede to the point where you can't even see it. In fact, I was uh, just watching another show that talked about making a scale model of the solar system. We've probably all done this when we were in grade school, made a, a model of the solar system, but none of us made it to scale, I don't think. Uh, there was a couple of brothers, they wanted to make a scale model of the universe, so they went out to kind of a flat desert area, and they started with a marble, a marble as a representation of the Earth. And they said, okay, if, the, if this marble is the size of the Earth, then in order to make that model to scale, we need seven miles. Seven miles, uh, a circle seven miles in diameter uh, to properly space out the, the planets uh, away from the sun. So you can imagine, by, if you take a marble and put it down on the ground and zoom out uh, so you can see an area seven miles in diameter, you're not going to see that that marble anymore. So we, even when we just zoom back, just so we can see the solar system, the Earth is already too small to see. And then those shows usually keep on zooming out. The solar system becomes too small to see in the, in the galaxy. The galaxy becomes a pinprick in the, in the cluster. The cluster recedes into a pinprick into the, in the greater cluster, and that even recedes into a, a pinprick again and again until it's very clear that the Earth is just a speck of a speck of a speck of a speck of a speck that you could go on forever. This expanse that God created that Genesis is talking about here on the second day of creation is vast, even beyond our comprehension. And normally, that would make us think, what is man? How insignificant we are. If you went to the planetarium, they probably even said something about that about how insignificant man and the earth is in the universe. 
God's word agrees that the universe is this vast. We not only have Genesis 1, 6-8 here, but elsewhere in scripture God talks about it. Here's another example, Genesis 15, 5. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So this is God talking to Abraham. And he's giving him that promise that Abraham will have many descendants. He compares them to the stars in the sky. Now, if you go out tonight and look at the stars in the sky, and you think, okay, how long would it take me to count them? You'd probably think, well, that would be a while, but it's doable. Uh, it might take a couple of years. I don't know how long it would take to count all the stars in the sky, but it's something that somebody could accomplish if they were really um, committed to it, right? But... Just to make his point, uh, in another verse, God uses a slightly different analogy. Genesis 13, 16, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Yeah, we probably could count the stars, and the, the stars that we can see in the sky. We could never count all the stars that are out there, uh, but the ones that we could see in the sky, we could probably count those. But how many of you want to try and go and count the dust of the earth? Imagine if you're in grade school here, your teacher said, okay, go uh, count all the dust or all the dirt on the church property. Even just on the church property, that's a task you would never complete, uh, not in your lifetime, right? That's not something that could be done. There's just too much of it. Now you've got to take that and times it by all of the earth. And yet this is a number that God uses comparative to the stars in the sky. Notice he uses them both as examples of Abraham's descendants, as if they are of similar equality, the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky. That's just how vast the universe is. The prophet Jeremiah does the same thing. As the host of the heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. So again, God's word presents the sand of the sea as a number similar or equivalent to the stars in the sky. Uh, we were just at Color Andre yesterday. We went there with Kaylee for, for Father's Day. Imagine uh, trying to count all the sand just at that one beach. Now you've got to multiply that times all the beaches in the world, and then you've just started because you have to count all the sand under the sea as well. That is a huge, huge number. And so God's word even makes it clear that, yes, the universe is vast. This expansion that God made is vast. Although on day two, now we're on day two, he hasn't actually made the stars yet. I don't want to confuse anybody. Uh, that comes later on day four, so he hasn't actually made the stars yet, but he makes that expanse, that vastness in which all those stars reside. And it is vast. And again, we come back to the fact that that vastness might well make us wonder about our place in God's creation. Or how can man claim to be anything when the universe is just so big? But God's word teaches us something different. We read here from Psalm 8. These are the words of King David. And he kind of begins in the same place, the same lesson as those planetariums might begin. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you visit him. So at first David says, yeah, compared to the sky, compared to the stars, and remember David's only talking about what he can see with his eyes. He doesn't even probably know or understand just how vast space really is. But just the stars you can see in the sky, he says, oh man is nothing in comparison. Why would God even bother to worry about us 
And yet, verse 5, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Rather than overlooking or forgetting about man, God's word makes it clear that God has visited us, and that, of course, is referring to Jesus Christ who came down from heaven and was one of us and lived among us, but it's also referring to how God comes to visit us in his word. When we study his word, he's with us right now in that word, and in his sacraments, and he comes and walks with us and makes himself a daily part of our life. Not only is he aware of who we are, uh, even in this vastness of space, we are not lost to him. Even the vastness of the number of people on the earth, well, we sometimes forget how many people there are on the earth. We just think about our little bubble of people, right? And we forget uh, how many, what, 7 billion, or maybe it's up to 8 billion now. I, I haven't checked re recently. <laughs> but in that vast crowd of people, uh, God has not forgotten about us, but comes and visits us and makes his home with us and walks with us. And David goes on, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Again, only through Jesus Christ. By ourselves, we have no glory or honor before God. But in the person of Jesus Christ, he has given glory and honor to, to men, to sinful beings like us, making us, washing us in his blood and, and making us uh, his people. And so what a wonderful reminder that despite that vastness of space, no, God has not forgotten about us. Oops, I went ahead too quickly. That's all right. You guys get a sneak preview of what's coming then, huh? So if we revisit that demonstration of that, uh, the movie or the planetarium zooming out and the earth becoming smaller and the universe becoming smaller and the, or the galaxy becoming smaller, if God were to give that demonstration, he might give the same demonstration except right at the center of the video would be man. And even as everything recedes around it, the earth recedes, the galaxy recedes, God doesn't care about the earth, but even as the earth recedes and the galaxies recede, Man never loses God's focus. He's always right there. That's what David is teaching us there in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? We have a tendency to forget what God did on day two. We have a tendency to forget who God is. We have a tendency to forget just how vast space is. It's kind of comforting to just forget about it and just focus on our little bubble, uh, isn't it? But as we forget who we are, that we are nothing in comparison to God and all he created, we have a tendency to become self-centered. And we have a tendency to think that the universe revolves around us. How many times growing up did your mother tell you the universe doesn't revolve around you, right? She's not going to drop uh, everything just to fulfill our every wish and our every desire. We act this way when we pray, We often when we pray to God. We often pray to God only concerned about what I want and what I need uh, instead of thinking about all of God's people and, and, our, and our neighbors. When Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, of course, he doesn't teach us to pray in this self-centered manner, me, thinking, oh, the world revolves around me. Instead, he teaches us to pray we. We always say we, not I, right? He doesn't teach us to pray my will or what I want, but your will be done. Not my will, but God's will. He doesn't uh, teach us to, to pray for what we want for this earth. There's the one petition about the daily bread, but it's the smallest part of the Lord's Prayer, but instead to focus on God and his kingdom. And most importantly, probably, in the Lord's Prayer, no matter how angry, no matter how upset, no matter how mistreated we feel by somebody else, 
There's nowhere in the Lord's Prayer that teaches us to pray, God, give me vengeance on those who have mistreated me. But instead, God teaches us to pray, forgive them as you have forgiven me. To show the same forgiveness for others, no matter how badly they mistreated us, that Jesus chose for us. We do often become self-centered. We do often have a tendency to fall into that idea that just pushes everything out of our mind and out of our consciousness except for me and my life and forget just how vast the world is. And yet even though our prayers are often so self-centered and so sinful, there's not a single one of them that God hasn't listened to and heard and answered as well. Even in this expanse, even in this vastness of space, God, in his love, not because we deserve it, but because of his love, has not forgotten us. Isaiah 45, 4 and 5, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, even though you have not known me. And so the prophet Isaiah and many others there remind us that uh, even in the expanse, God knows each of us by name. What God tells us about his creation on day two certainly reminds us that we should come before him with humble hearts, recognizing just how small and insignificant we are in the vastness of God's creation. However, at the same time, we can come before him rest assured and confident that he has not forgotten about us, that we are not lost to him, uh, either in the vastness of people or in the vastness of, of the expanse. But he still loves us and sent his son to die for us. Amen.